It is a joy to be here. I'll uh, ask you to go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 4, page uh, 992 in your church Bible, if you're using one of those. I'm going to read that for us in just a minute, and we're going to dive into the text together. I just uh, wanted to say, as you've been informed, you're supposed to love me and uh, my church. Thank you, Scott. That was helpful. Uh, I just want you to know we do love you as well, and we're happy to, 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 you know, having given you Mitch and Elizabeth, we're happy to take Matt and Noreen as a fair trade. Um, that'll work. Uh, or wait, that's not happening. Okay. Oh, good. No, we, uh, we are so thankful for you guys. We give thanks to God for you. Um, as a church, I want you to know that your pastors boast on you guys. Uh, they love you. They love what God is doing in your midst. Um, and they counted a privilege to serve among you. Yeah. That, that is not something that can be said about every pastor in every church. <laughs> but they love you. Um, and that's one of the reasons why they are so committed to word ministry, um, which is one of the things we get to think about today. So I'm excited. One of the things that binds our hearts together, I'll tell you a quick story about James. One of the things that bound my heart to James, the first time I met him, uh, we were in a meeting, uh, and it was a group discussion, and a question was asked, and a bunch of pastors were trying to answer the question, and very politely, very tactfully, very lovingly, not American at all, um, <laughs> James just said, you, you know, as we're talking, I was thinking about what the Word of God says, or something to that effect, and opened up his Bible, and he was the first one to actually open up his Bible and start reading what God's Word said in that conversation to see if God had anything to say about the thing that we were trying to find answers to, um, which was so encouraging to me. I was like, man, that is such a healthy correction for me, um, and it knit my heart to his quickly. He is a guy who loves the Word, who goes to the Word, who finds his hope, his strength, everything for his ministry in the Word. Um, and so I am so thankful for that. That is um, evidence of his love for you, that he wants to share that with you, and evidence of God's grace in you, that you're drawn to that in him. So all that being said, we don't want to talk about him anymore. We want to get into the word, uh, which is what he would want us to do. So we want to read from 1 Timothy 4. So I'll invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read beginning in verse 11. And I'm going to read down to verse 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Please pray with me before you're seated. Father God, we, we come to you and we ask for help. There are so many things, so many things that could stop us 
from hearing your word today. So many things that could make it hard for us to receive your word today. Whether it is sin, whether it is worry or fear or anxiety, whether it is physical tiredness or mental tiredness, Father, you know what we're going through. You know the real reasons why it would be hard for each of us to hear your word this morning. Father, ultimately all of those things, all of those things are just contributing factors to what our enemy would love to have dwell in our hearts this morning, which is unbelief. So Father, we pray in your mercy that starting with me, down to every last one of us here this morning, you would give us grace to approach your word now in faith, believing that you have declared these very words. You have breathed them out and you have sent them, you have given them to us in order to accomplish your purpose. And these words will not return to you void, but will accomplish what you purpose. So Father, give us faith to receive this word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What have you done? A skeptic might ask. As a church, I've, I've watched you. I was here this week. I saw it. I saw what you did. You put so many hours into all the events this past week. You put so much work into it. You probably even invested some money. All of this, so many people giving up their time, sacrificing their week, coming in and surfing for what? So that you could continue training men to stand up in front of a room of people and engage in a monologue as if that's going to make any difference. Don't you know that's antiquated? Preaching is the way of the past. Our culture can't listen to preaching. People don't hear like that anymore. It should be about conversations and we should sit in a circle and we should all just talk this thing out. What is this declaring of God's word that you as a church have committed yourselves to and committed to helping other guys do? Has it been any good? Could it possibly accomplish any good? I want you to know I don't think that. <laughs> I was here and I saw you investing your time, your sweat, your tears, pouring yourselves into this past week. I know you to be a church that doesn't just value that one week out of the year, but every single Sunday as you gather. I want you to know that despite those competing voices that you might hear from the culture around us and even from churches around us, Preaching is not outdated. Devoting yourself to the study of the Word of God whenever you gather is the will of God for you. So what I want, my argument this morning is, is simply this, that I want you to know from Scripture that one of the chief things God desires for you when you gather together is that your time would be centered on the Word of God to reading, to exhortation, to teaching. And that as you do that, 
Here's what's going to happen. People will be saved. That is, people will be converted. People will be sustained. People will be preserved until the end when they die or Jesus returns. That salvation only happens as you continue what you've already begun in devoting yourselves to the Word of God. That's my argument, but who cares what my argument is? I want to show you from the text. So this week of all weeks, my, my, my outline is rather pathetic, but I hope it's, it's simple enough, um, and I hope it helps illustrate the point. I'm just going to ask, what does the text say? And then I'm going to ask, so what should we do? So the, most of our time is going to be spent just, what does the text say? We're just going to try to work it through together, and then we're going to spend some time at the end, just a few minutes at the end, thinking about what it actually means in terms of how we live it out. So let's get into the text then. Verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, who he's left in Ephesus to continue on the ministry that Paul began there. He says to him, command and teach these things. What are these things that Paul has in mind as he writes to Timothy? You can look up just a few verses earlier in verse 6. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, so he's continuing a thought that he's already begun, all these things that Paul has been laying out for him, what are these things? So if it's already continued, look back in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul tells us why he's writing these things. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So Paul is saying, I, all these things that he's writing to Timothy, that he's telling Timothy, Timothy, now you insist on, you command and teach these things. These things are behavior things. They're life things. So let me give you a, a sample of what he means. Chapter 2 and verse 1. First of all, then, I urge... That supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. He's going to go on to describe how that works. It's because of the gospel. Paul says, pray for all people. Be a church devoted to prayer for all people. Because God desires people to come to a knowledge of the truth and to be saved. So because of that gospel, Timothy, this church is to be a church that prays. So command them to pray. He also says, verse 8, command the men to get along. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So guys are supposed to be lifting up their hands in prayer, not closing up their hands in fists to fight with one another. So guys are to get along and not quarrel about doctrine, and women are to get along and not quarrel about dress. Look what he says next. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold, pearls, or costly attire. See, here's what's going on. He says, clothe yourselves with good works, what's appropriate for you. What's happening is the women in Ephesus and the church are trying to just mimic the styles of the courtesans, of the upper class of the town, the city. So you're competing for rank, for status in the way that you dress. And he says, that's not what's supposed to define you at all. Stop the, the divisions and the quarreling that's happening because of dress. And dress modestly, humbly, in good works. So, so Timothy is supposed to command them all to pray. Command the men to get along, the women to get along. And now command the men and the women to get along in terms of how the teaching and life in the church functions. He says, let a woman learn, verse 11, quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach, 
or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. He's, he's going to ground that in scriptures all the way back from the beginning and say the order that God began with in Genesis 1 and 2 is better than the order of Satan in Genesis 3. So command and teach these things. And then that's actually going to work itself out in the way the church lives, the way the church is structured. So he's going to say, you're going to need qualified overseers, elders, and deacons. That's where he goes in chapter 3. So, so protect these offices, which is going to mean telling some people they're not qualified, or at least not qualified yet. And other people, they are. See, this is getting down right into the very nitty-gritty of church life, right? It's, you start talking about what the church program should be and shouldn't be and wh- what the men should do, what they should discuss and what they shouldn't, how the women should dress, how the men and the women should relate, who should be in office and who shouldn't. All of a sudden, you start to understand that for Timothy to command and teach these things, he's going to run into some trouble. Which is why verse 12 of our text says, let no one despise you for your youth. See, <laughs> Here's the reality. If, if preaching, the preaching that Timothy was supposed to do was just supposed to wax poetic about this thing or that thing, this philosophy, that idea, no one would care if he's young. In fact, maybe he'd just be a little more energetic so the youth might be a benefit. It's the, the reality is that as soon as you start telling people actually how to live and commanding and teaching down to the nitty-gritty details of life and the ordering of the church, all of a sudden people will find reasons not to listen to you. I mean, here Paul highlights age. Let no one despise you for your youth. There's all kinds of reasons in our culture. I mean, I, I could list, I, I mean, I, I, I got all kinds of strikes against me. I am, I am white. I am male. I'm cisgendered. I'm heterosexual. I mean, our culture, I have nothing to say. I got like four or five strikes against me right off the top. People will find all kinds, as soon as you start to say something they disagree with, there are all kinds of reasons why not to listen to you. For, for Timothy, it was specifically age. Age in and of itself is a funny one too, right? Well, we can't listen to this guy because he's too old. He's telling me what to do. He is out of touch. He doesn't understand our culture. He doesn't understand the day we live. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. That's what our culture's like. We don't want to listen to age. In, in Paul and Timothy's culture in Ephesus, they didn't want to listen because of youth. So Paul says to Timothy... What you need to do is don't let them despise you for your youth. Don't stop commanding and teaching these things, but rather show them that the things you're commanding and teaching, before they come out of your mouth, they've already sunk into your heart and worked themselves out in your life. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. In other words, everything that you're saying has already taken root, is already bearing fruit in your life. So you're not commanding and teaching anything different than what you yourself have already been living. Whatever he lacks in years, he must make up for in godliness of life. Paul says, continue to do this, verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You could read until I come as a statement that um, pretty soon teaching isn't going to be, this kind of teaching isn't going to be needed anymore, so just do it until I come. But I don't think that's the right way to read it, because Paul's plan when he comes, we saw in chapter chapter 3, 
verses 14 to 16, is his plan is he's got more teaching he wants to share. So in other words, what, what he's saying is, until I come, you preach, but as soon as I get there, you can have a seat in that pew, because I'm going to be in the pulpit. <laughs> I got some instructions I'm going to lay down for you guys. The preaching isn't what's going to be temporary. It's Timothy in the pulpit that's temporary until Paul comes, at which point, presumably, T- Timothy will take over again. Paul continues to admonish him to devote himself to this. Devote yourself to it. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So he states it negatively. Do not neglect it. Don't stop doing it. And then he states it again positively, Repeating the command, practice these things, verse 15. Devote yourself to them. See how many times he's saying this? He's, he's reiterating it. Practice, devote, devote yourself to them over and over so that all may see your progress. Which means Timothy's got to keep getting better and better at what he's doing. Which means that your devotion as a church to this practice of the preaching of God's word has to be grounded in a trust that is in the source of the preaching, the word of God, not the preacher himself. It's not, it's not about the skill of the preacher. It's about the source of the preaching. He here is being told, let everyone see your progress. In other words, if you're tracking with Timothy from the beginning days in Ephesus to a couple of years down the road, you should be able to say, I see how he handles the word of God better. I see how his insights are growing. I see how his, his, his ability to exhort and to teach and to command, I see how that's growing. Everyone can see his progress. That's what's supposed to be happening. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He's going all the way back to where he began in verse 12. Keep a close watch on yourself, your life, so that you're setting an example and the teaching. So that both your way of life and your word ministry are likewise growing. So that your way of life gives you a platform from which to declare these truths. That people don't have a reason to write you off, but they will hear you. And why? Why does Look, look at this command again. In verse 16, halfway through, persist in this. How many times has he given this command in these few verses? Devote yourself to it. Practice it. Don't neglect it. Devote yourself to it. Persist in this. What's the reason for the urgency of Paul's commands, the repetition of Paul's commands? Look at the outcome. Persist in this, for by so doing. By doing this, by devoting yourself to this, practicing this, not neglecting this, persisting in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. People are going to be saved, Timothy. If you open up God's word and devote yourself to this, people will be saved. You and your hearers. If that's the case, 
Friends, I can't think of anything more important than people being saved from an eternity apart from God, bearing the wrath of God rather than knowing the, 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 the joy of being in the presence of the God for whom we were created. If this is what's on the line, I can't think of anything more important. Of course we should devote ourselves to this. And that then begs the question, do we really understand what we're talking about? what we're devoting ourselves to. I want to narrow in for a few minutes on one specific phrase. Verse 13, one specific verse. I want to ask if we really understand at the center of this what Paul is telling Timothy to devote himself to. The reading, the exhortation, the teaching. Until I come, devote yourself to this. That devote word is a word that Paul's used already in this letter. And it's helpful to think about where. Remember back in 1 Timothy 1? You can look there if you want. Paul's reminding Timothy of what it was that he did when he left Timothy there and the reason why he left Timothy there in the first place. And the reason why is that it's not because there was no one there devoted to teaching. It's that people were devoted to wrong teaching. Look at verse 3, 1 Timothy 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that, here's why, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So there are people devoting themselves all right. They're even devoting themselves to teachings, just culturally approved teachings, teachings that are going to divide and bring controversy rather than be helpful. Look at 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. As Timothy is supposed to be commanding the people how to live godly, it's in this context, 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And then he talks about some cultural forms of godliness that are being promoted in Timothy's day in Ephesus. There are people who are devoting themselves to teaching there, Timothy. You need to charge your people to be devoted to something else. Here's, here's the reality for us too, right? Our, our culture is devoted. We have our own myths and endless genealogies. We have our own conceptions, cultural, godless conceptions about how we should live. We have myths and genealogies that will tell us all kinds of things about our origins as a species where we fit on this planet in relation to other animals, what it means to be male and female, and how the two are to relate, what marriage is, how sexuality is to be practiced. You think, you think they're not devoted to this? What are, the, what are the changes that continue to come to the curriculum that we teach our children in the schools? What messages, if you watch TV shows, what messages are you picking up on as you observe the male characters and the female characters, the homosexual and the heterosexual characters? 
In every show, in every movie, you cannot get away from it. In the schools, in the books that we read, in the magazines, in the grocery aisle, everything you look at, our culture is devoted to convincing us that their teaching on the way to live is the only right way. They are devoted to it. So much so, we're so bombarded with it, that as soon as you start to read the Bible and you're reminded about Say something as simple as marriage, but being about a covenant between a man and a woman, you think, maybe I'm crazy. Am I crazy? Because no one else in the world thinks this. You ever have that feeling? This is what, this is what G.K. Beale writes about this. I've been so helped by this quote. He says this. He says, worldliness is whatever any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness to be strange. We imbibe the zeitgeist, that's a fancy word for the spirit of the age, we imbibe the spirit of the age the, the, of worldliness, when we, and then we feel strange trying to think Christianly, trying to act according to the Bible's mandates. That is, when we think the world's thoughts after it and do not think God's thoughts after Him then we will not be motivated to do the things that God wants us to do. But we will only feel comfortable acting in a manner that fits into the world's way of doing things. That is why Christians, he writes, that is why Christians who cease going to church begin to feel more and more comfortable in the world and less and less comfortable in the church For the same reason, that is why regular attendance at church is so important. At church, we worship by hearing God's word, praising God, praying, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and fellowshipping, all of which encourages believers and convinces them, this is the good part, convinces them that they indeed are the ones who are normal and the world is strange before God's eyes. Oh man, do you need that? I need that. We are bombarded by these myths and these endless genealogies. Our world is devoted to these lies. That's why we need to gather and be devoted. Paul says, devote yourself to truth, Timothy, so that the people will not feel strange, but they'll recognize it's the world that is strange in God's eyes. Devote yourself to what? Verse 13, to the reading of Scripture, to the exhortation and to the teaching. So wait a second, preacher. You've been telling me all along so far here that we're, we're talking about word ministry. We're talking about preaching on Sundays. We're talking about what we're supposed to be doing when we gather. So I understand if you say preach, but this text doesn't say preach. Why doesn't Paul say preach? Paul knows the word preach. 2 Timothy 4, right? I charge you in the presence of everything, of of God and the elect angels of Christ Jesus in His coming to judge the living and the dead. Preach the word. He knows how to say preach. Oh yeah, he knows. So why doesn't he say that here? Why does he say this? I don't know. But I thank God that he did. Because he's highlighting for us at least three elements of what you ought to expect that make up a biblical understanding of what preaching is. Okay? 
I want to show you that. I'm going to do one of those sorry, not sorry things. Sorry, not, but I'm not really. I'm going to show you from several places in the scriptures how these elements of reading and teaching and exhortation function as what we know as the preaching event. Okay, I want to show you that. Now, I'm going to do that by showing you several texts, because, and, and a lot of them are familiar texts. But here's the thing. I was sharing with someone this week. No, no one has ever accused me of having a small nose. Um, but I don't see it. It's right there on my face, in front of my eyes, and I don't see it because my brain has learned to block it out. It has become invisible to me. Now, now, sometimes when we read the scriptures, things that should stand out in front of us, right in front of our face, we miss because it's just become common. We've read it so many times. And so I want to show that to you from a few places in scriptures, okay? So look with me at Luke chapter 4. I want to show you, this is the pattern of what believers did even before Jesus. Okay, Luke chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood to read. Okay, so there's some public reading happening here. What is he reading? The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He's reading the scriptures publicly. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. It was common for teachers in this day to be the ones to sit, and often it was the listeners who would stand. That'd be a nice change, I think, anyway. I don't know about you guys. Uh, Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus goes up, and he sits down, and the crowds gather around him. It's the same kind of thing here. So he sits down. In other words, he's preparing to teach. As he sits down, the eyes of all in the synagogue are fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's going to start talking about what the scripture says and how it applies in this day. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. I wish... We had more time to think about what's actually happening, what Jesus is teaching. I just want you to see the events as they're unfolding. What's happening when they gather? There's a reading of scriptures, there's teaching, there's exhortation. Okay, that's the pattern before Jesus. What about after Jesus? Does it change after him? Look at Acts chapter 13 with me. In Acts chapter 13, this is the pattern of the apostle Paul. Not, not just the Apostle Paul, but even of the people of his day as he goes around and visits different churches, um, different synagogues even. So Acts 13 and verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation, that's our word, right? 
It's our word from this text from 1 Timothy 4. There's a reading of scriptures. Now they're looking for a word of exhortation. If you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. He stands up. There you go. And he motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he begins to teach and to admonish them with a word of exhortation from the scriptures that have been read. Okay, so that's in the synagogues, even after Jesus' day. What about in the gathering of Christians, in the gathering of believers? Acts 15. and verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, these are believers, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, This is a letter from the church in Jerusalem. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now that word that's translated encouragement there is the same word that's translated exhortation in our text. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged, same word, and strengthened the brothers and sisters with many words. So they get together, there's a reading, and then there's a word of exhortation, of encouragement, so that the church is being strengthened and built up. You seeing the pattern? So this is the pattern before Jesus. It's the pattern in the synagogues. It's the pattern in the gatherings of Christians in those early days. But it's also the pattern of all the apostolic era churches. This one's cool. The last one I want to show you is here in Colossians chapter 4. So look in Colossians chapter 4 with me. Paul writes to this church in Colossae. And he says to them, Colossians 4, 16. By the way, it's just so encouraging to hear pages flipping. In my church, I think there's like three people that still use paper Bibles. This is, this is, I'm just used to seeing this. You guys are great. Colossians 4, verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Okay, do you see what's happening? They're continuing in the same pattern. We gather and we read and there's exhortation and encouragement and strengthening being given. But what is now being read in the gathering? It's the letters from the apostles. See, sometimes we, we miss this, right? I, I, I want to pause here to build your faith for a second because sometimes we hear arguments like, oh, the Bible wasn't put together except for political reasons. The Council of Nicaea, you know, 300 years later and, you know, who knows if these are really parts of the canon or whatever. You know, this is made up that the apostles' writings were authoritative. While the New Testament was still being written, they would gather and they would read. Okay, what are we going to read? Let's read Isaiah or Jeremiah. Let's read Genesis, something from the Torah. Let's read Paul's letter to Colossians. They're treating the letters of the apostles in the exact same way they treated the rest of scriptures in the first century. I want to show you, this isn't just during the apostolic era either. In the second century, so but sometime, Justin Martyr is writing sometime between 100 and 200 AD. Okay, so put as far back as you can go after the apostles have died. And this is how Justin Martyr describes a common second century gathering of the church. This is what he says. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets, see that? New Testament, Old Testament, already in the second century. Either of them is read as long as there is time. I like that. 
That's good. How long we got time? Let's go for that long. As long as there is time. And then, when you figure you're out of time, then, when the reader is finished, the president, or the elder, the leader, in a discourse, admonishes and invites the people to practice these examples of virtue. Then we will all stand up together and offer prayers. See, you see what's happening here? Like, I'm taking a lot of time to show you this because I really want you to see what you do when you gather and someone stands up here and opens and reads and exhorts you. It is not strange. It is the very pattern you have inherited from 2,000 years of church history. And it is the very thing God has commanded you to do so that you will be saved. You got a clear picture of what's happening to come. They read, there's teaching, and there's exhortation. That's why when, when I read this verse the last time, I tried to point this out. Paul is saying, devote yourself to the reading, the exhortation, the teaching. You don't see it in a lot of English translations because it sounds kind of awkward. But in the original, he's writing, he's attaching a, a definite article to each one. In a similar way, you could imagine if we were to say, during the offertory or during the worship set, or during the pastoral prayer. These are things, these are elements, specific elements that you would expect to be in the service. Paul's saying, during the exhortation, the reading, the teaching, this is what you should expect. Now, that begs the question then. How is it that by devoting himself to this, they'll be saved? Because that's the end goal of all this. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will be saved. You and your hearers. How will that work? Well, because if the Old Testament teaches us about Jesus, as it is read and as it is taught, it will show us the one in whom we are to believe. If the apostles' teaching is being passed down, they'll show how Jesus fulfills every promise, every hope of Scripture. And if the Word is being exhorted from, then you will see that you are not able to live out what God requires of you. You are not able to live up to the pattern and the standard of Jesus because you'll see that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you can only be told for so long, live this way, live this way, live this way, live this way, before you say, I can't. I can't do it. I've fallen short and I need a savior. And at that point, see, this is what happened for me. I was trying to live for so long. I'd heard the gospel for so many years. I knew so many Bible stories, and then in a minute I realized that as I was standing, I was standing in a church building, and I saw a cross up on the wall, and I was looking at it, and all of a sudden it began to make sense. That had to happen because I can't do this. He had to die in my place. The promised Savior who gave himself for sinners like me. As the scriptures are read and taught and exhorted, People will see their need for a Savior, the Savior that these scriptures teach of, and they'll put their trust in Him. Have you done that? You could do that. For me, it was an instant. I just realized, and it happened. I put my trust in Him. Have you done that? This is, this is an interesting thing, because Paul's not just talking about conversion here, right? He says, Timothy, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. I don't think Paul in his mind is like, I don't know if Timothy's saved. Timothy might not be a Christian. I don't think Paul's thinking that. 
When he's saying salvation here, what he's meaning is you are going to finish the race. Some people need to get in the race. That's the conversion. Get in the race. But other people, salvation, that just means finishing the race. That's why, that's why the author of Hebrews writes this, right? He, you guys spent some time studying Hebrews. You know this. He wants their knees, the weak knees to be strengthened. He wants their faith to be bolstered. He wants them to see the beauty of Jesus from all of scriptures. And so at the end, in this letter where he's writing them to persevere, to press on, to be strong, to be saved... This is how he describes what he's done after quoting all the scriptures. In other words, reading them and teaching them. He says this, Hebrews 13, 22. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation. That's our word. He used the scriptures to teach and to exhort that they would press on and be saved. This text says that some people need to be converted Others of us just need to be built up and strengthened and sustained for all that lies ahead to press on to the end. In that way, Timothy will save both himself and his hearers. So I said we'd spend a few minutes at the end talking about what should we do. So if that's what the text says, then how do we respond to that? What specific ways should we respond? I want to think about that in two areas real quick. One is practice. The other is posture. So what do we do? (laughs) And then what should we expect? In terms of practice... I think God has given you guys grace uh, to start doing this already. This starts before your weekly gathering. It starts by hiring a pastor and encouraging and strengthening and freeing up a pastor who will do exactly what Timothy was called to do and devote himself to the study of these things. So as a church, here's what you can do. When James gets back, you can encourage him Brother, thank you for the ways we've seen you do this. I know you're doing this because you believe it's how I'll be saved. Thank you for doing it. And you can ask him, are there other ways we as a church can be freeing you up to devote yourself to this more? Are there things that you have on your plate, responsibilities that you have that are distracting you from this? Because I need to be saved, and so we need to free you up for this. And then if you ever see him not doing this, you need to admonish him. And call them to account, because as a church, you need this. This starts before the gathering, and then it takes place in the gathering. So like how you guys read the scriptures, I love this. At our church, I I say, here is what Holy Scripture says, and then I read it, and then when it's done, we say, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds, thanks be to God. What you guys do is great. You don't do that. You stand, because you're understanding that what you're hearing are the very words of God, so you're standing in reverence. This is good and right. It's also how much time you spend in this. In a service, your service is supposed to be an hour and 15 minutes. I'm almost out of time. All right. So, but but what, you're doing is, what, what you're doing is essentially you're saying, you know what, more than half of our time we're going to devote specifically to this. The whole service is structured around praying God's word, singing God's word, all of these things. But the bulk of our time is going to be spent in the reading, the exhortation, the teaching. And it's going to be teaching that is geared at application. Because remember, Timothy is supposed to command and teach these things that are all about how you live your life. So when you hear the word preached, it should be preached in such a way that your life is being changed. You're being called to change. You will be kept and preserved through obedience to Jesus. 
as you hear this word calling you to change. It also takes place in the gathering as you come consistently. Here's one of those things that pastors can't really do in their own church, so I'm going to do it here. You just need to be here. I mean, if James was up here doing this, and I'm sure he would do this, but even if he was saying this, just you need to be here regularly, you need to understand he's not saying that because he wants the pews filled. They're filled enough. There's barely any room in here. Praise God. But he's saying that because he believes that as you endure in this life and you press on and you're bombarded by all that the world's devoted to, the way that your faith will be sustained when you're feeling strange, when you're feeling weak, when you're feeling beat down, is by being here. So he's not saying that just to browbeat you because your attendance matters. He's saying your attendance matters because this is how you'll be saved is by sitting under the word. So it has implications in the gathering. It has implications beyond the gathering, which, brothers and sisters, I thank God for you and the ways that you as a church have devoted yourselves to helping other brothers throughout the GTA proclaim the word of God. This past week is evidence of that. Praise God. Keep up the good work. So lastly then, how does it affect our posture as you come on Sundays? Okay, I got it, preacher. I'm supposed to be here, and, and James is supposed to be preaching, and we're supposed to stand for the word. Okay, I get there's a reverence for the word, but what about our posture, our expectations? I think they should start with God's expectations. God says, my word will not return to me void. I will accomplish my purpose. God says, as you do this, people will be saved. So if God is expecting that his word will work and that people will be saved, that conversions will happen, that sinners will be called to repentance, that the weak will be strengthened, what are your expectations? Do you come in on a Sunday thinking, oh, I wonder who's here today? Or I hope so-and-so doesn't sit beside me again. I wonder if we're going to get out of here for time for lunch even. Uh, Or are you coming expecting God is going to bring change, miraculous, spirit-empowered change as we open up this ancient book? That should change everything in our posture and the way that we walk in on a Sunday morning. So, brothers and sisters, what have you done? What have you done this week? You have invested yourselves in helping other brothers learn to preach the word. And in so doing, I pray that your faith would be strengthened as well. What you have done is not in vain. This Sunday, there are pulpits all across the GTA that are filled with guys who are fired up to preach, to do exactly what we've just thought about, so that people will be saved. And God will get all the glory. I pray that God would give us faith to be more and more people like this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word which calls us to change. Pray that you would give us faith to receive this word, to have our posture, our expectations changed, to be willing to let that posture drive our practice. Father, we want to be a people who are obedient to your word. So give us grace to do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.